I, uh, I type on, uh, on my computer every week, right? And I have a computer before me. I can see the, the screen and I can see the keys and I have things plugged into it. But the things that are actually making the computer work, I often do not see or think about. If I were to take apart my computer, I would see the, the memory, you know, the components, the electrical parts. I can't even talk about them in any technicality. And yet they are necessary for my computer to work properly, is to have those things inside that I do not normally see or think about. Or your car, you're going to get in your car, you're going to see the door handle, you're going to get in, you're going to see the steering wheel, the keys, maybe the radio, but we know the engine's in there, but all the hoses and all those components you don't often think about as you're driving your car. But they're necessary. Our passage today is a very, very, very well-known story, and yet the theological importance of it is often forgotten. We love this story of humble Mary, her being told she's going to have a son. And we know that she is a virgin. We know that. It's very true. But we don't often think about the importance of why the baby had to be born to a virgin. It happened, and yet it's not something we dwell on. We talk, yes, Virgin Mary, there's the baby Jesus, but why did Mary have to be a virgin? That's one of those hidden components there that's kind of below the surface that we assume is there, but we don't often think about. There's an old church statement called the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the earliest uh, theological statements of what Christians believe. And it has a, a few of the following lines. It says, I believe... In Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In other words, in the first couple centuries, for you to be considered a faithful Orthodox Christian, you had to affirm the virgin birth. It was necessary for gospel truth. And yet today when we talk about the Christmas story, we love it. It's a great story, but we probably don't think of why the virgin birth is necessary. Just how I am not going to be thinking about why all those hoses in my car are necessary for my car to work. And my check engine light is on, by the way, in case you're wondering. (laughs) The gospel is good news because of the virgin birth. If you have a Bible, please open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 26 through 38 this morning as we continue in our series here through some of the Christmas passages. It's on page 855 of those pew Bibles. If you'd like to turn there, 855. Once you find Luke chapter 1, would you please stand in reverence for the word of the Lord? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the children to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, help the, this word dwell in our hearts richly this morning. Spirit, help us. Amen. You may be seated. There is uh, nothing normal in this story whatsoever. You have an angel appearing to a young woman, an angel declaring that this young woman who's unknown to almost every single person in the world is going to be the conduit who brings the Savior into the world. And this Savior will be born to her, though not through human conception like every other child, but by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth despite being a virgin. The Most High God, the Eternal God, will be in a womb. The God of no beginning will be born. All of this is summarized in, in verse 37 when we read that there is no impossibility with God. This baby is who we call Jesus, and this virgin birth to many seems shocking or unnecessary or confusing or just a sacred fable. Why couldn't he just be born normally, some people ask? But in reality, the virgin birth of Jesus is the very proof that God fulfills everything he promised he would fulfill in the Old Testament. In the coming of Jesus to a virgin woman, the world now has the Savior it needs and the Savior that was promised to them. So this virgin birth, it's not just a little detail of the story. It is actually necessary for you and I to find salvation. It's the fulfillment of so many Old Testament promises. So I want to give you the main point today, and then we're going to work just through two points. Main point of this text in the sermon is this. The virgin birth of Jesus is proof that God will always fulfill his plans. Our calling is to have faith. The virgin, proof, or virgin birth is proof that God will always fulfill his plans, and our calling is to have faith. This is a, obviously a very supernatural, unique story in the Bible. It's both um, cosmic and it's, it's personal. I mean that, by cosmic, I mean that the birth of Jesus impacts every single inch of the universe. Everyone and everything is affected by this story. It's cosmic. It reveals the ultimate plan of God for the entire history of the world. But the story is also personal, right? It involves a real woman, a young woman whose world is changed in a moment. She's a real person with real feelings and real doubts, and her real world is turned upside down in a moment. It is personal. So God has plans for the entire wave of history, and yet he also has plans for Mary, an individual. So we're going to see that God has an ultimate plan for all of us, but he also has a personal plan for each 
and every one of us. And we see that here in this story, and he is going to fulfill whatever plans he has for you and he has for the world. So let's first begin by looking at the big, cosmic, ultimate plan of God that the virgin birth advances. God is going to accomplish what he has set the world to accomplish. So the first thing we've got to look at is that the virgin birth calls us to have faith in the ultimate plan of God. This story is in Luke chapter 1 as well as it's in Matthew's gospel. So essentially the very first thing that happens in the New Testament in the second half of the Bible is the virgin birth of Jesus. This is the big starting moment that changes the world. But it doesn't just happen. It's been built upon and we've been working our way to this moment since the beginning of creation. Since the book of Genesis, God has been paving all of history to get to this very moment. Look at verse 31 here of of Luke chapter 1 again. The angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We'll come back to that. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We're going to look at Mary in our second point today, but look at what the angel is saying to her. This child that she's going to conceive and give birth to is going to be called Jesus. He will be great, the son of the Most High, which is a long way to say he is God. And he's going to sit on David's throne, which he inherits by his by his dad, Joseph, and that family line, and his kingdom, that throne, will never end. All of that was prophesied in the Old Testament. For hundreds of years, God has been sending his prophets, his spokesmen, to come and say, this thing is going to happen. These are Old Testament citations and allusions and quotes. In other words, the virgin birth of Jesus fulfills the Old Testament plan of God. First of all, think about what this baby's name is going to be. Okay? To us, it's just Jesus. That's what we call him. We consider that just a name, but literally the name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. By his name, God is declaring something. By this man, I will save the world. The Lord is salvation. Now, you and I, we often, we often don't, maybe some of you, but we often don't have this kind of emphasis on naming our kids anymore. Right? My kids are all named after uh, people I admire in history or characters in books I love. And I never thought about it till this week that my kids may grow up not liking those books, but they're going to be stuck with that name, I guess. Right? My name, Troy, means foot soldier. So I guess you know, my parents didn't find me worthy enough to be part of the Calvary, and I got stuck walking. I don't know. I... But in the Bible... Names carry meaning. The name Jesus carries meaning. This baby will be called the Lord is salvation. As in this baby is the salvation that God has promised to fulfill since Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve, they sin in chapter 2. Chapter 3, they come face to face with, with God They've fallen, they have sinned, and God does what? In Genesis 3.15, he promises from the very first sin, he promises that he is going to send someone who is going to crush the serpent or Satan on the head. 
The first promise of salvation and rescue and deliverance is in Genesis chapter 3, in the beginning of the Bible. And here in Luke 1, the beginning pages of the New Testament, there is the child being born who will crush Satan and who will save. So even calling this baby Jesus is causing so many who would hear this story back in the day think, that's Old Testament. This is the one that God has been writing about. Right? The Old Testament is a story of nothing but the Lord continually saving and rescuing people from enemies and from themselves. Right? The people are stuck in slavery in Egypt. Who saves them? The Lord. Daniel is stuck in the lion's den. Who saves him? The Lord. Israel rejects God time and time again, and they are in their sin. Who saves them anyway? The Lord. All the Old Testament is God just seeing sinners and saving them anyway. Season after season of God picking up his people off the ground and putting them back on solid ground. And so this baby Jesus, born in Bethlehem to a virgin, is the final permanent mark that salvation is of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel would be rescued from Egypt or from Assyria. And then they would be conquered again by another nation like Babylon. But here with the birth of this child named Jesus, salvation will be secured and will be permanent. Sin will not come back to win. Sin will be defeated. And salvation is a done deal because this baby was born. So all of the Old Testament, everything that it was written for was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus and in his life and death and his resurrection. So as Jesus was born to be married, to be married to Joseph, do you note the detail that's mentioned about Joseph here? He comes from the family line of David. He said in verse 27, That's not just thrown in because you and I care about genealogy. This is thrown in to make a theological point. Jesus' earthly parents are Mary and Joseph. And this means that Jesus comes from the line of the great heroic King David in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 7, so again, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, God said something to King David in 2 Samuel 7. He said in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7 that the throne of David will be established forever. The throne of David is eternal. There will be no end to it. But not too long after 2 Samuel was written, Israel was defeated. David died. His sons died. They weren't ruling on the throne. So how could a throne be eternal if no one's sitting on it? Well, because Jesus is the one who will inherit this throne and no one, once Jesus is on it, can knock him off of it. Jesus is in the genealogical, the human line of David, and thus in a human sense, he is an inheritor of this throne and kingdom, and he will reign over the kingdom of God's people forever. And we haven't even touched on what we preached last week from Isaiah 7 and 9, right? Isaiah 7, 14 promises a virgin birth. 700 years in the future or in the past, hey, we're going to have a virgin birth. God promised that years before it happened. Isaiah 9, God describes this child as being one who is fulfilled in the New Testament. You can see Christ fulfilled these many characteristics that are mentioned. We could go on and on and on. But what we see is the Old Testament and the New Testament are not two separate books. They are the same story progressively told. The birth of Jesus was so wisely 
and meticulously planned and executed, and it shows that God fulfills all he promised in the Old Testament. He's coming to save. He's coming from the family line of David. He's born to a virgin in Bethlehem. We could look at all the prophecies, but overall, everything God promised to happen comes and happens. God does what he says he will do, and we see this so clear in the virgin birth. And yet, I haven't even touched on why the birth needs to be a virgin birth. The only way for you and I to be saved from our sin is to be saved by someone who is two things, who is truly human and truly righteous. You and I cannot be saved unless there's someone who's truly human and truly righteous who can atone for our sins. In Genesis chapter 3, because sin enters the world, what does God do? God curses humanity because of sin. God cannot just hide and look past our sin and put it under a rug and act like it's not there because God would stop being God. God is, and his character is perfect and unchanging. He is just and he is righteous. What is right is right. What is wrong is wrong. God sees our sin and our sin is opposition. It's war against him. He created this world for us to live rightly with him and yet we lived wrongly. So all humans, because of sin, are born as cursed people. We don't like that. We call this original sin. We are born into original sin, and guess what? We prove our original sin by the way we act. You don't have to teach children to sin. They just do it. We are a cursed human race because in Adam we have sinned against a good, righteous, just God. By being born, we are entering into a sinful nature that we reveal as sinful the more we get older in life, right? It's just how the modern day philosopher Taylor Swift put it. <laughs> it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. Right? All humans have the problem of sin. It's at our core, and we live it out. So in order for our sin, our cursed identity to be wiped away and forgotten, our sin must be atoned for or covered. God is going to unleash his wrath upon sin, and it must fall upon humans. Why? Because humans are the guilty party. But none of us, no one in this room, no one on this planet can take the wrath of God and yet live another day after. The wages of sin is death. The result of sin is death, separation from God. So if you and I were to pay the penalty for our sin, we would bear it and we would die and be in hell away from the kindness of God. We would stay cursed. Thus, the necessity of the virgin birth. Jesus was born both of Mary, but conceived by God. Fully God, fully human. By being fully human, he can come as a representative of the, of the nature of humanity, and he can truly, in reality, bear the burdens of sin. Because he is human, he can be human's representative. A human must pay the price because humans messed up. Jesus, by becoming fully man, can come and die as a sacrifice to pay for sin. 
but he also must be fully God, fully righteous, because by being fully God, he has never sinned, he's not guilty, he's not born into original sin because he's conceived by God. If Jesus sinned, Jesus could not bear our sin. He would die along with us. But because Jesus is fully God and thus perfect, he can stand in our place as a real human representative and he can come out on the other side of death victorious because he is righteous and divine and he resurrects. He's not guilty, he's innocent and pure, thus he becomes the only option for us to be saved. Fully man, it means he can stand in our place for real, he can really stand in for me, and he's fully God, which means that sin will not crush him but he will crush sin. You need both to be saved. If Jesus were not born to a virgin, if he were born just like you and I, he would be born into original sin. Two humans conceiving Jesus would be born like us, plagued by sin, but Jesus was conceived by who? The Holy Spirit. His birth, he is anointed as holy, set apart, made righteous. This is God bringing forth Jesus, not a sin-stained human. This is Jesus who is perfectly righteous for all of eternity coming in here. By Adam, the first man in the Garden of Eden, we are all guilty of sin, plagued by sin. By Jesus, the second Adam, on the cross, we can all be declared forgiven and free from sin. So Jesus is the better Adam, the better man, by being fully God and fully man. Now, I'm not the biggest uh, ice cream guy, but when I have it, I almost always choose Neapolitan. You get the best of all the flavors, right? Vanilla, chocolate, strawberry. I don't care if they're artificial. It doesn't matter. But in one scoop, you get all of the best, right? One ice cream three flavors. Now, Neapolitan ice cream is not a great metaphor for the virgin birth, but the virgin birth shows us that we get one person and two natures. In Jesus, we have satisfaction, not because he's just man or just God, but because he is both. Without the virgin birth, we would not be saved. Only because Jesus is fully God and fully man can we be saved. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Only Jesus was born of a virgin. Only Jesus can represent men. Only Jesus can resurrect. So he is worthy of our faith. So for thousands of years of Old Testament history, you have Jesus or God promising that Jesus was going to come. The virgin birth, the incarnation, redemption, Isaiah 53. You have all of these verses and passages we can look at in the Old Testament, and it comes to a head here when Emmanuel, God made flesh, is here. His name is Jesus. The Lord is my salvation. God does what God said he would do. Friends, this is the point of your life. The point of your existence. The reason why the world spins as it does is to get to the point of Jesus. Everything you learned as a kid is nothing unless there's Jesus in your life. Every education, every job you've had, every calling, every experience you've had in your life is worthless unless you have Jesus. Because in Colossians we read, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Everything is for Jesus. 
That's why all the Old Testament is getting to him. And now we are on this side having the full Bible. Here is Jesus. If Jesus is the center of history, it's you and I who have to get aligned to him, not getting him aligned to my life. And I want you to notice how trustworthy this God is. For thousands of years, he meticulously and supernaturally led all of history to Jesus, every moving part under his control. If God can redeem his people through a supernatural virgin birth, can he not be trusted in your daily life? If God promised to do all of this and he did it, what does this mean for you today? This means that God and God's word is trustworthy. He says what he's going to do, and he does it. The virgin birth is proof of that. It shows God's ultimate plan. His cosmic plan is successful. And this means that the part of the plan not yet fulfilled can be trusted. What's the part that's not yet fulfilled? Jesus is going to return again. He's come already. He's going to come again, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And there's a heaven and there's a hell. And where do you rest? Will you trust in Jesus and find your security in him so that on one day you are going to be ushered into the new creation? You believe in Jesus for your salvation, and then you can believe in Jesus every single day knowing he is going to carry you to the ultimate end. If he can usher history rightly, he is going to usher your personal life rightly as well. He can be trusted. This is the second point. The virgin birth calls us to have faith in God's personal plan for us. God's personal plan. This virgin birth is a cosmic event. Brings salvation to the whole world. But it happens through entering into someone's real life, a woman named Mary. Mary's chosen to be the the instrument, the conduit who gives birth to Jesus. Look again at verses 26 to 31. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We don't know exactly how old Mary was, but she's probably somewhere around 13 or 14. Living in a city called Nazareth, and Nazareth is a city full of nobodies. In the eyes of the empire, Nazareth is just kind of like the armpit of Israel. There's little prestige in Mary's life, nothing important about her to the world. But it is Mary who is chosen to receive this great commission from God. An angel comes to her name, Gabriel, and says, Greetings, O favored one. Now, the word angel just means messenger. Someone sent by God to speak to her. The word of God coming to Mary from God. And God chose to place his favor on Mary. Mary was ordinary just like any one of us. Chosen out of the grace of God to an angel calling her out. And, and, to, and God sent an angel to call her out, and her immediate response is what? It's fear. So she was greatly troubled at the greeting. 
She's not so much shocked, even though she's that there's an angel there. She is shocked of what the greeting is. Do you notice that? Out of her humility, she says, I, I'm not worthy to hear from an angel. Like, do you know who I am? I'm a nobody from Nazareth. And the angel reassures, don't panic, don't fear, don't be troubled. Why? Because God's grace, God's favor is upon you. God's will for you is to bear his son. God came into her life, poured his grace upon her, and called her to do something. And look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? How will I have a child since I am a virgin? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. There's an elephant in the room here, is there not? Mary asked the question, Excuse me, Mr. Angel, I, I know how science works enough. Like, I, how is this going to work? I, I'm a virgin. I can't have a child. Yeah, she's got a man in her life. His name is Joseph. They're betrothed. It says in verse 27, right, betrothal. We don't use that language anymore, but it's a serious engagement. It's more serious than the engagements we have in order to break off the engagement back in the first century here in in Jewish culture, you'd have to actually get a divorce, which means that Mary would have had to commit adultery for this divorce to actually happen. So they're living apart. There's no sexual relations. They aren't married. And she's wondering, how will I become pregnant and yet still obey the law? Well, it says the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. This is not a human conception. This is from the Holy Spirit. Just how a, a cloud may cast a shadow that makes grass dark, so too God's going to overshadow Mary and she will be pregnant. It is a miracle. I want to mention this. I don't want us to, to miss this. Back in Genesis chapter 1, we read that everything was dark and formless and void. You remember that? Life and structure and meaning were not there until what? Until the Holy Spirit is mentioned where he's hovering over the face of the dark and through the Holy Spirit, the darkness of creation comes to life. Darkness, chaos, emptiness until, boom, the Holy Spirit comes on the scene and live and stuff beautifies things. It's the beginning of the Bible. Beginning of the Old Testament. Beginning of the New Testament, what happens? The same thing. There's darkness, a need for spiritual life. And boom, the Spirit comes hovering, overshadowing a woman named Mary so that through her, spiritual life will come out to all of creation. In both the beginning of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, we have the Spirit coming onto the scene, doing what He does, brightening up life, bringing life, beautifying things. So in creation, the Spirit comes. In Mary's womb, she, He actually makes life in Mary's womb, and then spiritual life goes out to all the nations through Jesus. So this overshadowing, this coming to life, is the typical work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. The Bible is connected, Okay. And this angel reassures Mary, who's terrified and confused. He says, also, by the way, your cousin Elizabeth, who you know is barren, who has not been able to have a child for many, many years, she's pregnant now too. 
The angel is reassuring Mary, you can have faith in God because God does what is humanly impossible. Now, we cannot fully imagine what Mary was going to endure. But she's a young girl in a culture where if she was accused of being pregnant outside of marriage, she could be shamed or even killed. So in her mind, she's probably thinking, well, God, this, this is going to be hard. What if my family doesn't believe me? What if my community throws me out? What if my fiance, Joseph, doesn't believe me and he actually divorces me? Have you ever been up at night wondering, God, how, how am I going to survive this? Or God, I, God, I hear what you're saying to me, but how do I do that? God, I, I, I know I read the Bible. I know that verse, but how do I actually trust that right now in my life? God, you say you'll never leave me nor forsake me, but Is that really true of me, God? You say all things happen to the good for those who love him. But have you ever wondered, God, I'm going through this thing, and how is there any good in this? Mary is given a word from God. The word of the Lord came to her through the angel, just how we have the Bible. Mary's hearing from God. And she has loads and tons of reasons to doubt and fear and be anxious. There is danger physical, social, emotional danger here to her obedience. She may be prosecuted in the courts of Jewish law. She might be an outcast with no one to provide for. There is a cost here to Mary's obedience. If she's going to believe in God, there will be a cost. Right? It's not all roses and pansies for Mary when she carried Jesus in her womb. And yet, what is Mary's response to this difficult call of obedience? Verse 38, she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. She will endure the gossip, the accusations, the sleepless nights. She will endure it all. Why? Because she trusts in God and his word. We don't worship Mary but we learn from her example and seek to imitate this humility and obedience. Her faith in God was stronger than her circumstantial doubt. She looked to God and his word with more heaviness than the circumstances she would be in. And through her faith, she birthed the savior of the world. So though this virgin birth is a huge cosmic world-changing event, it comes to be through God speaking personally and specifically to one woman through an angel. This is huge to us, but it's personal to Mary. God has this huge plan for the world, but he's also ruling over and guiding and leading each one of our lives. God does have plans for you. He is all over and in and through your circumstances and your feelings and your seasons of life. But sometimes... It is so much easier to trust in Jesus to save us from our sins than to trust him in our current life circumstance. And on paper, we know which one's a bigger deal. I'm saved from hell. Like, is there a greater miracle than that? No, but yet I doubt God in this certain little phase of my life. Some of you have wayward children 
and it's burdening you more than you can explain. Some of you have financial stresses that feel really, really heavy this Christmas season. Some of you have lost parents in the last month or so, and there's grief and loss, and it's difficult. Our job is to do what Mary did. Look to God, believe His Word, and live. Trusting that God will do what He always does. He will unleash His grace upon us as we read and follow and listen to the Word of God. So let this story of the virgin birth encourage you and remind you that God will always fulfill what he promised ages ago. And with Mary, he promised he will be with her, and he was. And she endured it all, and actually she outlived her son. When God calls you to something, he will equip you with his grace and his favor to complete it when he wants you to complete it. Now, I don't know what God's will is for your life. I don't know the details. I probably will never know. I don't know your aspirations. I don't know your career moves. I don't know where you're going to live your whole life. But I know God's will for you if you are a Christian. It is to obey his word. And obeying his word at times is going to be costly. Evangelizing to a friend might make that relationship awkward or might cost you a friendship. But is obeying God, is that a heavier priority than your friend? Saying no to that sin sometimes seems difficult, but trusting in God is more important. In moments of adversity and temptation, our faith is revealed. Like Mary, are we going to treasure the word of God in our hearts, or will we turn away from God in that moment? In Genesis 2, we read of the first woman, Eve. She chose to take fruit from the serpent. She was told by God to stay away from that fruit, yet she went to it. She didn't treasure the word of God in her heart, and so she treasured fruit and temptation. And because of that, all of Eve's seed, all of her um, descendants, all of mankind is cursed with sin because of the first woman. But then in the beginning of the New Testament, we read of the other woman, Mary, who hearing the word of God, treasured it and obeyed it. And her seed, her descendant is Jesus, who reverses the curse of sin and now blesses mankind with salvation. Both heard the word of the Lord. Both had different responses. In our lives, we get the privilege to imitate this example of Mary, to take this book of the Bible and eat it and digest it and let it be the way that we live our lives, trusting in God behind it and God in it as we face life. If he's planned out thousands of years of history and perfectly executed, he can be trusted. If God can bring forth a virgin to conceive and bring Jesus, he can be trusted. He has a plan for you personally, and he's asking you to keep obeying his word, and you will experience the favor and the feel of his favor and grace, just like Mary. I was, um, I was tempted to end this sermon with a story about how a famous Christian trusted in God. You know, you got, you know, Jim Elliott or Elizabeth Elliott, or, you know, you go to St. Patrick, you go, list all these, uh, these heroes who have biographies. But then I was thinking, this congregation is full of little spiritual heroes like this. Now, we don't worship each other. We don't worship famous Christians, but we have a room of people right here who model this kind of faith to us. Some of you are examples of what it means to trust in God no matter what. 
be you feel alone. We have a church full of widowers and widows who have talked about this, that they trust God even when their soulmate has been taken from them. Maybe you are struggling because you're struggling in parenting and you're worried about your child. This church has parents who've trusted in God in the highs and lows of parenting and have come out on the other side. Each day we wake up in our life with our own circumstances. It's unique to us, but we all can choose what other people in this congregation and like what Mary has chosen, we can say, Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And I don't know if I need to remind us of this, but by a woman saying yes to God, Christmas came to be. The birth of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you that you would call a humble lady named Mary, to bear the Savior of the world, Jesus. And through her, through Jesus, we now have life. We thank you that you use humble, sinful servants like Mary, humble, servant, uh, sinful servants like us, to bring grace to other people. I pray there are some in here, Lord, who, who need grace, who need to come into salvation with you. I pray that happens this morning. There are many in here who are hurting, who need your grace and your favor in their life. Lord, we come to you even in this prayer knowing that we can only do this because of this virgin birth. And that right now, Jesus Christ, right now, is interceding for us because he is both fully God and fully man, a perfect representative, that we are in favor with you, God, because of Jesus. So much to praise you for. We thank you for this Christmas season that you made, were made flesh. Let us keep bowing down before you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.